Welcome, dear listener, to Season 2, Episode 6 of Weekend at Crombies. Saddle up, hitch up your riding boots, get the smell of saddle soap underneath your bottom, and let's ride with Breaker Morant. Welcome all to Weekend at Crombies. I am Hugh. I operate under Rule 303. And I'm James Evans Esquire, and Hugh Morgan has stolen my introductory. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do say that a slice off a cut loaf's never missed. Oh, indeed, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, I, I, do I need to see the world? No, I've already seen it. That'll do. There we go. It's not as good as, it's not as, good as Rule 303, though. That's why Damn. you get in there first. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why that's why you're the um, the editor supreme of Weekend at Crombies. I'm just here for the. I like to think the looks. Well, you you add a certain cinephile uh, touch of class to the proceedings. I do. That, uh, I do. Is Certainly a touch of class. I'm sitting here in my pajamas, my um, my uh, vest. I've got a vest on, um, and I wouldn't say just pants. I'm wearing uh, kind of a semi warm kind of long johns they are really i'd describe them as gone for that kind of 1902 look which is interesting given that that's when the um the film breaker morant was set yes well we haven't mentioned the film yet but um thank you for providing so much material that i can cut out and use in the in the the post credit sequence (laughs) it's good to get that one in you know tucked away really early on yeah you never know what's going to be used if it gets toward the end of the podcast and we've not really got anything it's it's a worry isn't it absolutely well it's it's never ever got to that point i've normally got it tucked away in the first edit um but we shall begin with an apology to the listeners because uh this this should have gone out a week earlier i had suffered severe head trauma um incurred uh, in the dad's 50 meter sprint at my son's sports day in school um i was i was i was i wouldn't say i was ahead of the pack because i was at the back but i was about to find my fourth gear um when all of a sudden my legs ceased to operate in conjunction with each other and indeed myself and i found myself launched at some speed um at terra firma but luckily my face was able to act as some kind of break um and so i've seen the evidence of this fall as I, well. I did say it's picture. quite graphic yeah um it would be an 18 certificate i think but <laughs> what would I... what would be more what would be more challenging would be the psychological distress of the public humiliation that would have taken place at the same time as the physical violence. Well, That's what would have stressed me out. I can take a broken yeah. nose. <laughs> I, can't, I can't take the laughing of mums and dads at a child's sports day. Here's some interesting things to know, actually. Is Firstly, as I, as I, I, I picked myself up halfway across the pitch and then staggered across the finish line to, uh, to show the youngsters <laughs> that's what you do. Um, you, you finish the race no matter what. No matter even like if, Derek Redmond did in the Olympics that like, time. Like Derek Redmond. Also, probably, there was another race right behind me. And I don't think they were going to stop, so it was imperative. <laughs> that I, Imagine no. if you'd finished last in the <laughs> next race. <laughs> I'd just been in a hurdle. Um, funny enough, a, 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 another dad fell over in the race after me. Um, oh, brilliant! Possibly because there was a large dent in the in the playing field, but that, somehow, that somehow it appeared. Yes, and acted as a. But, but no, it took as, some of the attention away from you, then, didn't it? Well, yeah, the, the, the field wasn't safe. No, funny enough, I, I, I walked across the finish line, wiping the blood from my face, and um, and hoping the swelling in my eye would somehow go down. Um, there was en masse, I think, a general averting of eyes because I had to walk the entire length of the running. Patrick, 
back to where I might have left my coat. Um, and I walked past everybody, and there was a, you know, I, I was as if I did not exist. I had become invisible. Um, a non-person. It was like, you know, in 1984, you, when you cease to be, they just <laughs> looked right through me. And the other interesting thing was, um, word got around, I heard this back to you, that, that um, the, the, the view from the, uh, the kiddies section was that some dad had either tripped me or cut in front of me and caused me no. to fall. Now, I don't know if that happened because I, I re- then took a blow to the head and didn't could, can't quite remember what the situation was. I think I just fell. But yeah, your your own your own leg and arm coordination did it did enough damage for you for you yourself. Yeah, you didn't need yeah. someone else to help. Well, you see, however, I think that they they considered that it was impossible for a grown up <laughs> dad to just fall over his own feet, and therefore, in their minds, they've they've contrived something some kind of shenanigans that caused me to fall. So this is good. The story's got around that I was I was, and I'll tell you what. Here's 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 the honest truth here. As we were all the dads were lining up, the one. I particularly athletic dad was next to me and he was in bare feet cause it was a sunny day and he was just chilling out and I thought he's going to run and be feet and I, and I made a Zola bud joke right next to him <laughs> what and, was the joke um something like oh like Zola bud ran barefoot you're not going to trip me up are you <laughs> <laughs> oh no it's art art imitates life art imitates life I think it's what the gods laugh at me so yeah I was I was, yeah. I was I was I was at the back of the pack I'll admit that but I was finding my second gear and it turns out I don't really have a second gear. And it turns out also that a lifetime spent not sprinting does not prepare you well for doing a sprint. Well, I was going to say that to all of our listeners who have never met Hugh, um, imagine a man who at a child's sports day would fall over his own legs and smash his head on the floor. You've got that image on your head. That's exactly what Hugh looks like. <laughs> I would I would like to say that I was built for comfort, not for speed. <laughs> well, I hope you're feeling better. Very and much so. And good and things come to those who wait, don't they? Absolutely. And indeed, the listeners have now listened to this vignette of my life for long enough. We can yeah, now get yeah. on to. Would you like to introduce the film because it was your pick, and I'm keen to get cracking with it. Yeah. So uh, the film of uh, Volume Two, Episode Six of Weekend at Crombies is uh, called Breaker Morant. Um, and it is a film um, which is the story of three um, officers in the um, Bushfeld Carboneers, which is a British army kind of offshoot in the Boer War at the turn of the uh, 20th century. Um, and the Bushfeld Carboneers are... Uh, a group of um, kind of army army bods who are kind of put together to try to um, attack the kind of guerrilla warfare of the Boers at the time. Yeah, in, in, um, in kind of the, the modern parlance, what um, what had begun in the Boer War was kind of set piece battles, which of course the British yes. army won very quickly. The Boers That's then just fled into the veldt and, and engaged in guerrilla warfare for the next two years. That was again, as guerrilla warfares are, very hard to com- combat. You know, the asymmetric warfare. And yeah. the Bushveld Carboneers were what we there was kind of like special ops. They were yeah. the guys given the license to go out there and wage the guerrilla warfare on the guerrillas, and and and, and thus to wage almost total war in the sense that um, you, you know carte blanche anything goes really in that particular context, which is where we get into the story a little yeah. bit. Uh, so obviously these these um, Bushveld Carboneers, the, the story is about three of them in particular: um, Lieutenants Harry Morant, played by Edward Woodward. Um, which is always fantastic to say. Peter Hancock, which is who's paid by um, Brian Brown. So uh, Brian Brown, uh, f- big um, Weekend at Crombie's 
um, star because of his role in FX2, Murder by Illusion, and FX, of course, um, which is a fantastic 1980s stroke 90s Australian thriller. If you've not seen it, do. And um, well, George taken Whitten... what I was going to pick next month now. I love FX2. <laughs> George Whitten, played by Louis Fitzgerald, who's a kind of newcomer in, in, in the role. And these three individuals have been charged with murdering um, captured Boers, basically, and a German missionary. Um, and the what I'm going to do is I'm going to just kind of describe the synopsis of the film, uh, not not as it's presented in the film itself, because it's done in kind of flashback and present time and so on and so forth. So it, it's a little bit complicated to talk through the synopsis yeah. using the way that the film is structured. So it's a bit easier to talk about it in chronological terms yeah. in terms of what happens and then moving it forward. Yeah, the, so we'll the, come the, the, the analysis the, yeah. of the film when, it, when we get to yeah. it. But. The conceit of the film is it's a trial. So it, in, in yeah. um, not unlike Bounty, actually, the film we viewed last year, it, it begins... It, it circulates entirely around the trial of, of these three men and their defence attorney and as they are mentioned and witnesses are called in they flash back to the scenes that happened yeah. then and there's some um, other things that happen around it but eventually the entire film which is around a trial again it was based on a play so that's probably where it came from yeah and based on a true story yes yeah, well. sorry a play of a true story yeah. and, and all that business yeah and um, it, so it is it is effectively a courtroom drama um, and uh, w- which is based on kind of court martial activity and it's a war film as well so it's, it's got a kind of like the three prong process to it yeah. so if effectively what we have here is um, the, the the leader of the Bushveld Carboneers someone called Captain Simon Hunt um, who he's led a, a, a group of men to a, a, a farmhouse in kind of rural Pretoria I think it is um, and he's intended to kill one of the, the Boa commandos effectively but and he's, he's taken a lot of the Bushveld Carboneers with him when they arrive they find that actually there are far more Boas there than they expect at the time and Captain Hunt is uh, wounded, he's shot, he's wounded, and he is... Um, he's left there by the, the rest of the company. He's left there by, by, yeah, by his other colleagues, although he does tell them to, to go and, and, yes. and, and you know retreat. So it's a kind of act of valour, I suppose, to a certain extent. When the when the uh, patrol returns to the... It's interesting, the, sorry, that the, the, captain, the last time we see the captain alive in this scene is um, he's, he's shot, he's on the ground, but he still managed to whip out his gun and kill the, the, the Boer leader who came out of the the house in the first place it's almost it's yeah. just the, the killing never stops yeah i do like the boas names as well it will be a, a, a comment i'm not going to do an accent because i'm not <laughs> i'm not good at that but maybe hugh will at some point but the 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 commander that they've gone to kill is called bad end Viljuan, and there's loads of names like this in in, in um because afrikaans is such a kind of um interesting language but anyway he he's wounded we don't know really what happens to him at that point the patrol returns to the um carboneers main kind of um fort um and they obviously come back without Captain Hunt. Um, and they've, they've told they've told um, uh, the corpse captain, who's called Alfred Taylor, um, that basically he's been injured. And Taylor tells Breaker Morant, Harry Breaker Morant, played by Edward Woodward, saying that again, um, to go and avenge Hunt. So effectively what he does is that he brings a, a, a kind of gaggle of the Bushveld Carboneers to find the Boers to find uh, and see if he can rescue Captain Hunt. They get to the the farmhouse again and they find that Captain Hunt has in fact died. He's been mutilated hideously. Um, what we by see the, from that is just Breaker's we, reaction. Though. We see Edward Woodward looking down. Yeah, right. He's looking yeah. down at, I think, either a cart or something. We don't see. We, we're where the, the camera's looking up at Breaker's um, response, which is 
all it needs to see that this is horrific because Edward yeah. Woodward's face just goes. Um, it goes pale, doesn't it? Yeah, he, he starts shaking. He's, he's utterly disgusted with what he sees. And given he's been a, you know, he's clearly been a professional soldier um, fighting this this guerrilla warfare, it must be bad. And also, we know yeah. that Captain Hunt was a, a very good friend of his. Yes. Um, yeah, he was a very good friend of him, and I think that he was uh, Morant was engaged to Hunt's sister, yeah, or something yeah. like that. Anyway, yeah. so they, they're they're very close in that regard, and this obviously fuels his his anger. Um, so they so, chase they chase down the, the party, and he's yeah. um, they find they find them after a few days chased, kind of in a watering hole. Um, and Breaker is so outraged, doesn't even kind of do a, a clever ambush. He just charges down. So most of them actually scatter and, get, scatter and yeah. get away. But they do catch one, which is the first, um, and they break essentially just sees him wearing what he thinks is Hunt's jacket or just some kind of khaki, and immediately in order to execution. Um, yeah. Which is the and first. It, and, and he's executed by uh, firing by firing squad at yeah. that particular point in time. And there's not a there's a few dissenting voices. Yeah. Um, one of them uh, is played by one of the dissenting voices played by Ray Meager. Ah, Ray Meager. <laughs> and Al Cell Block H. Oh yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. That, that would have been before this Cell Block H. I would have thought. Was it? Yeah, I think, I think Cell Block H was grief. late sixties, early seventies. Oh well, good on Ray Meager. Yeah, it is a yeah. shame. This is, okay, he he plays a, the kind of the straight down the line sergeant major who um you know has has no truck with this kind of rough kind of yeah. warfare, which is a shame because I think Alf, uh, Ray Meager grabbing a boy and calling him a filthy mangrove would have been uh, a, a wonderful <laughs> moment to capture on cinema. And the accents come off. <laughs> 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 um, so yeah, they fire him. Uh, sorry, they 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 shoot the bar and. Um, that's that's the end of that's the end of that particular aspect. Yeah. And, Can I dwell um, a moment? You said about accents on the interrogation scene because um, and this actually is almost pertinent to the plot. They have a, a Boer translator who's who's part of the, the Carboneers, but yeah. he's a, a native Boer, and he's the one that kind of provides the local intelligence and does the translating. Um, I just, let's say that the translation scene was incredible because basically they've got the prisoner and Breaker Man is yelling at him, you know, you murdered Hunt, and the, the translator is translating Afrikaans, which is so similar to English, it comes across as, you murdered Hunt, it's like, no, I didn't, no, he didn't, yes, he did, yes, you did. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, I can understand Afrikaans, I have seen the Matrix. <laughs> But that aside, I mean, actually, this this translator, interestingly, he's later uh, um, gives evidence. But in in this particular scene, or at least, it's hard to tell whether this is a true scene or whether this is Breaker's memory of this scene. Yeah. But the translator is scream once they get the firing squad and literally just drag him in front of a guys guys yeah. with guns, and so it's not and there's no yeah. way formalized. The translator is is also trying to avenge Captain Hunt because apparently you know he's a friend of his and was yelling, you know, I demand to be part of this firing squad, and he just literally yeah. grabs a rifle off the ground and runs as fast as he can to join this shooting party. Um, which again we'll see later when he when he gives evidence he's a little bit more um, circumspect about his role yeah. in that, and he does get his comeuppance later in the film. He as does, well. yeah. I, I felt again, given this was um, we'll skip ahead. So this yeah, this yeah. this translator does give it evidence, and he's a lot more kind of oh, I didn't know anything about this shooting party. Yeah. I I didn't want to do it. Um, and then the next scene, he's essentially assassinated in in the high street by um the Boers you know, for taking sides with the with the English. Um, I but, did but, I did feel on what was. Essentially, this is a historical movie film. It is. It's kind of a character assassination because even, uh, <laughs> a bit, yeah, because yeah, when this translator is, is giving his evidence, the film yeah. is flashbacking to this to the moment when he was going. I want to be part of the firing squad, and flashbacking to when he grabs the rifle. So yeah. it's almost like the film is just pointing at him, saying he is lying. This guy is yeah. a rotter, which is and 
there's obviously no way of knowing the truth of it. No. So it is it is effectively a, a character assassination. I'd have no idea whether this translator is a real individual or not yeah. either. But I'd hope it, not. Yeah. I'd hope he's some kind of amalgam because the idea yeah, that you yeah, just, yeah. just so, yeah. screw this guy over. But anyway, so... Um... It, it, it's, it's interesting what you say about um, whether it's Breaker Morant's uh, memory or whether that's the reality of it. And that will come through in, in, in the analysis that we talk about yeah. quite a lot. So I think that's quite a lot to, yeah. to say. Um, so <clears throat> um, Breaker Morant... Um, Peter Hancock, uh, George Witten, all, all, all on trial. trial. Um, in, initially, the, the kind of initial killing of, of the, the, the boa um, uh, who, has, who has wearing um, Hunt's jacket has taken place. So that, that's, um, that's charge one. And then charge that's charge two. one. Yeah charge, charge one two, is, yeah. Tra- yeah, charge two is the shooting of um, six, prisoners. six unknown boas. Yeah. Um, or, how do you pronounce boa? Is it boa? Boa, that's right, isn't boa, it? Boa, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, six unknown Boa soldiers who um, have surrendered effectively. So this happens before Captain Hunt has been killed. No, no, killed. no. Um, <laughs> this happens after. Oh, you're right. Yeah, sorry. Not, yeah. not helpfully, there are two instances yeah. of six prisoners being killed. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. So um, we'll, we'll come to the previous one, but yeah, uh, to continue the charge sheet, the, the next one is they capture six, six prisoners who surrender, and they think these are part, actually, Morant um, is kind of saying, well, they're, they're part of the ones who killed Hunt, and they're saying, how do you know? Right. He goes, well, I just know. And um, yeah. so he's, he's clearly on a bit of a blood feud now, and and he, yes. they, they line them up and they shoot them. But before, the, so that's charge number two. So that's charge um, number two. Yes. So, so it, yeah. two, two charges at the moment: the murder of the individual boa for yeah. wearing his jacket, who he thinks is the person that's killed Captain Hunt. Yeah. The second yeah. one is the group of six boa gorillas yeah. that have approached the fort. That they've surrendered. surrendered. Yeah. Moran orders them to be disarmed. He lines them up and he has them shot. Yeah, to, to, um, to give and Witten, Witten well, to, kills to, one to, of them. Well, to give due to the other ones, yeah. And um, Witten, is the, the younger officer who's also in charge, is is the one protesting that it's not right. And indeed, yeah. he, he has to shoot one who breaks breaks away from the forest and tries to kill him. So that's almost a, that's very it's much like a self defence. Really. Um, but again, Peter Hancock, the Brian Brown character, um, is very laissez faire about it at first. You know, he's, he does it with a shrug, saying, you know. I, it's I, my job. Basically. It's my job. It's but then, but then he does an interesting, you know, holding out a dum dum bullet, which is basically like a hollowed point thing that does tremendous damage when you shoot someone, and yes. basically holds that up in front of Witten, saying, "This is not a decent war." There's, you know, the Boers were carrying these horrific um, bullets. Yeah. I'm sure the British were carrying them too, by the way. But um, yeah. it's it's used an example of there's no clean hands in here. We can't. You know, morality does not belong in this particular arena. Yeah. Um, but then this ties in with the third charge is that before these six prisoners were killed, a uh, a German missionary um, toddles along into the camp to re- to refill his uh, his water. Um, and Morant is very keen. You know, don't talk to these men. I think the implication is he doesn't want you know more witnesses than necessary to what he's about to do. Yeah. Um, or, or that he's a spy and is providing that's... information to them. That's yeah. That's the other the other potential. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think actually in truth, this this guy was a Boer who was just working for the German church yeah. rather than a church, German yeah, missionary. That's right. um, although the very fact he was a German missionary in the movie is played up as a political instance. Yeah. It's almost used as the crux um, in the sense that um, General Kitchener, who's again in charge of this, this whole trial, yeah. um, is receiving pressure from the German government because a German missionary was killed. And therefore the, yeah. the, the conceit is, this is not entirely historically accurate, but the conceit of the movie is we got to... This, bring this trial to justice because a, a greater power is pressurizing us, um, and therefore that's and it, what effectively think, sacrificing a few yeah. British soldiers for or the Australia, greater good. Australian soldiers. These, yeah, these, these guys are being dragged forward. Well, they are Australian, yeah, exactly. But yeah. British Army, I suppose, yeah, part yeah. of the British Army. Yeah. To, to kind of yeah to, to appease a, a greater political good. So, so anyway, so yeah, as we say, this missionary um, talks to the Boer prisoners and then toddles off again, and then he is later found shot. 
and yeah. we uh, we later learned that it was um it was Peter Hancock who basically rode out and sniped him from afar and then went off to see two of his girlfriends in different villages to establish an alibi. And that's a hell of a day, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, yeah. they kill, they're about to kill six. He's killed. He's basically had a hand in the death of seven people. Yeah. And he's had nookie with two women. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not saying I agree with it, but fair play to him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't condone it. No, I don't condone his actions. But I can't say a part of me is a little bit. I'm, I admire them. <laughs> so that, those are the three um, charges against them, effectively. The 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 the, the, the killing of the the um, Boa soldier um, initially, the killing of the six unarmed um, unknown Boa soldiers, and the the Reverend um, the the missionary at the end as yeah. well. I think and we'll, um, we'll just flash back a second to. Um... To the the previous instance you talked about killing six prisoners yeah, because yeah. this is relevant because um it's it's being used as a kind of a precedent is that prior to Captain Hunt's death and and all this business kicking off we are shown another scene where they where Breaker Morant has had a successful ambush in kind of you know a correct way and he's brought back six prisoners he's chosen to take these guys prisoners and Captain Hunt in a kind of very not not spiteful or vindictive way just with a smile saying breaker we can't take prisoners and yeah. just orders yeah. captain taylor um who's their intelligence officer to just shoot them and he wanders off and yeah. he shoots them and at this point again this is where hunt just explains that you know this he's had all, he's had the nod from kitchener that they do, they they do not take prisoners not shoot them not execute them he said you know you just don't take them um yeah. and, and it's at the point it's at the point of the war where the the principle of it is is that kitchener just wants the war to end yeah and, and and wants peace to prevail and so therefore they they are not taking any more prisoners they don't have any capacity to take prisoners anyway so the order from kitchener effectively has been to take no prisoners yeah it's, it's, the gentleman's war is over and in fact it's the gentleman's war is over yeah. yeah i mean all this in terms of the context it's probably a combination of firstly asymmetric warfare always almost escalates like this because if if the you know the, the larger conventional army doesn't know who they're fighting yeah, it gets very frustrating and very scary. You you find yourself being shot by civilians, and you don't since your enemy's not wearing a uniform, you don't know who to fight, so you fight everybody. But, everybody but also yeah. the very nature of these Bushveld carboneers is they don't have a regular supply line, they don't have prisons, they don't have you know, shackles. They are as as much you know off the leash as the people they're yeah. chasing. So yeah, they're no, kind of off grid, aren't they? So they yeah, they, they don't they, have that kind of line of command either necessarily. Yeah, yeah Hunt even says we can't even feed these prisoners, and so in, yeah. in a sense, it's not a, it's not a vindictiveness; it's a practicality of warfare. The, how they're acting it's not the case of the entire orders across the whole british army is kill every boar it's that these mm. particular and it's, it's it is it said this is a new type of, of organization that was put together for the boer war has to operate in different ways and that is again so that those are the um and we'll wrap this up so those those six prisoners yeah. that were killed by captain taylor he himself is facing a later charge that will happen yeah. after this this breaker morant trial will happen and that's made play of um later on which can come to the, the conclusion but that's that's in the air the fact that they that other people have also executed prisoners and a precedent has been set um yeah and I, I should point out here i mean that sounds it sounds quite complicated yeah doesn't it you know the kind of <laughs> we, we made it very complicated <laughs> but it isn't actually when you watch it it isn't that complicated because the film the film the film breaks it down and tells you each particular charge and the process of processes of each charge through the kind of vignettes through flashback during the court trial so i think it's probably worth talking about the court trial now yes yeah um so yes yeah, so we the court trial so we have the three people in prison um the the, the uh, prosecuting um 
Council. Um, he's against a British yep. British major um, who possesses the Make best Charles Bolton, the best moustaches of the film. Um, <laughs> oh, easily, he, easily he does yeah. rock him. Um, and yeah. he's he's already had the nod from again Kitchener and Kitchener's aide that you know this has got to end. We've got to hush yeah, it up. Yeah. We, we, it is imperative to get this sorted out. Um, and then the Australians are being defended by again an Australian major, Major Thompson. Um, yeah. Which again, no, sorry, no, Major, Major Thomas, 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 Jack Thompson. Yeah, that's it, um, Major Thomas. Yeah. And this, I, I really enjoyed how he was brought on because he's, he's yeah. again, he's essentially brought into them um, with one day's notice to start with. Yeah. They're going to make he's some not, comments. He's not given access to any of the files, is yeah. he? Oh, he's, he's given access to the files, but he's not given access day. to. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah had one six day weeks. To read everything. Yeah. And, and there's the whole conversation of like, so how many how many murder trials have you done? And how many trials have you done? I, are you mostly working civil cases and lend disputes back at home? <laughs> Yeah, um, he said he's 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 handled anything except legal documents like wills. Yeah, yes, and then yeah. Uh, Hancock quips, "Well, that might come in handy." Yeah, Hancock <laughs> is very dry. He's he's Brian Brown at his most Brian Brown. Yeah, he is. Yeah, um, yeah. But um, I will say again, and there's some I say good courtroom dramas can sometimes have this scene and it's awesome when it works because we begin the trial the three men are being frog marched to the trial yeah. and thomas is basically running alongside them desperately trying to take notes and you think he's had a day's notice so he he's not on the case so he's desperately trying to take notes he's, he's losing track of who's who he's asking yeah. questions and you think oh my god he, he is a complete he doesn't even idiot. really know what the what the issues are really does he he's, no he, he, he's he, embarrassing he keeps asking which who's witness this it's like, this is our commanding yeah. officer yeah. so he's he's all over, and his papers keep falling over the place. But yeah. all of a sudden, on his first cross examination, yeah. he, he just what he's doing. he hits the mark, and he turns out he's as sharp as a tack because he yeah. he punctures the um because they have the old commanding officer who clearly doesn't like the Australians and is trying yeah. to trying to do them down. And then Thomas just comes in and utterly eviscerates him, and you think, oh, we got a game here. This is good. Yeah. Um, and, and that he, was a really nice moment the way it was all set up. Yeah, and it gets tighter and tighter as the film goes on as well because. Um, Without going into the detail of every single kind of facet of the actual um, uh, a, a trial, yeah. what 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 Thomas does very well is that he brings in what might be quite complicated legal arguments into the principle of what what is morally right, what is morally acceptable, what is following orders, yeah. to what extent the boundaries between following orders meet moral or ethical acceptability, yeah. and the balance between what the three accused have done. And what the orders have been from all the way up to Lord Kitchener um, and what the individuals are supposed to do in that particular context. So I think it's a and it's a really it's a very subtle transition from um, process of seeing the, the acts themselves through to understanding what individuals in those situations would do anyway yeah it's, again, it's, it's where we were talking earlier about again how what was precedent and what was gone before and i think yeah. interestingly again with this film is that they did it we we, we actually ex- get the flashbacks yeah. and we see exactly what it. i was going to say yeah. um and so it's not it's not a miscarriage of justice and it's no, not it's, and it's not a mystery again because we don't we're not kept in suspense whether they did it or not um yeah. and they're not innocent so the, the fact that so what you're really arguing again is the nuts and bolts of this case is like well you know, their men were under orders and they're not in trial. The officers were under orders, but where did the orders come from? What they were, they were new. He kept saying they were a new unit. They're operating in different ways. They've, you know, they've been told to wage unlimited war and all this kind of stuff. It really sort of makes you think about what's going on in this situation. And it's yeah. much more so than just, you know, three hothead officers decided to gun yeah. people down or three innocent guys have been picked on. There's, there's layers yeah. in get going on in this. And we'll come on to that in the analysis, but it's exactly right. The, the three are guilty yeah. 
they are guilty from the very get-go and you know that they're guilty but that isn't really the point of the film one of the best um one of the best scenes in the film is when um morant is asked to take the the stand and um uh major thomas asks um him uh sorry that's not major thomas is it's uh, major bolton yeah that's right the prosecuting um counsel he asks him what um Rule. What, rules, what is rules of engagement what rules of engagement justify effectively shooting an unarmed prisoner and as you said at the start of the, the podcast you you know he shouts back um rule 303 which is the caliber of the rifle of course yeah so and um it's a really it's a really it's a really powerful scene because edward woodward is going for it i think yeah it's, it's hard to say what edward Woodward's best scene in this film is because he has a lot of them um between yeah. the fact that because breaker was also a poet so we get lots of recitation he is scenes. A poet, yeah. but um yeah. yeah that that scene when he's he's literally turning on the court is is that moment of yeah you are you to judge me and, and there are other things when when um we we hear and it is revealed that captain hunt had paid a visit to the um kitchener's headquarters and the orders had come through that you would be taking no prisoners um so the the principle is is that you know morant wants them to call kitchen himself yeah. um to the courtroom to evidence whether he actually gave this order or not and obviously kitchener doesn't turn up but one of kitchener's lackeys does turn up and denies all knowledge of the conversation yeah. so it's it's an interesting kind of it, it pit, what it pits in in many ways in in the kind of courtroom battle at least is the the pomp and pomposity of the british army and the requirements of a group of officers out on a limb required to service a particular set of rules which actually have a very dubious moral and ethical center yeah and it's that kind of contrast which is really coming through i feel like we're getting a little bit into the analysis here. that's good it, 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 it breaks yeah. up the monotony it, it does it does um actually what happens though is that um thomas the defending counsel he 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 is he's effectively he does such a good job that they are um they're they um let me think about this it's the um uh, they're um you can cut this out let me start this again <laughs> Which is <laughs> sorry, because sorry. Oh, I've missed another bit out there. Um, so let me start that again, right? Okay. So the the other thing that is interesting about how we know that they're guilty, and actually as the story progresses, we realise that they are more, perhaps more complicit in their actions than at first we first realise. Is the murder of the, um, the the German missionary in the court is presented as an, an um, an unknown act. Nobody knows who has actually killed that individual yeah. because there's no evidence that it was um, any of the any of the three on trial. Um, and um, Hancock gets um, you know written affidavits from the women who he's been to see yeah. to say you know I was with them. I know, and, to, uh, and to repeat, he does have one of the best lines in the movie when they say you know you were you were with women who were already married. And he goes, well, they do say a slice off a cut life's never missed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is a brilliant line. <laughs> Um, but course, I'd like to but, use it in, in my own life, but I find it hard to find it applicable. <laughs> but but what, what what transpires actually is that um, he did kill the the, the missionary, yeah. um, and he was ordered to kill the missionary by Morant. It's um, a premeditation. The, the two of them it, basically have have a, an unknown an unspoken conspiracy yeah. when they know that he's right enough to kill him. Yeah, and then he goes to see the the, the ladies afterwards to get um, to, to kind of get a kind of like a um, I don't know an alibi, as it were. 
for him on on the day itself. And you know, only only Morant knows this until it's revealed to um, uh, George Witten. And so, you know, the defence counsel, Major Thomas, doesn't even know this. So there are there are things going on there which you think, well, actually, is this is this guilt? Is the conversation around rules of engagement actually justified? And is this more about a conversation about the acts that people in extreme circumstances will do? Yeah. Because because it might be, and this this raises very very serious ethical questions. It might be the easier option, or it might be the option which is forced upon them in that particular circumstance. So that it's not it's never quite um, described like that, but I think that's quite an interesting process. Yeah. And as it happens, they're, they're they're acquitted of the murder of the reverend. Yes. Um, which you know there's no evidence for that but they are um convicted of the murders of the um the boas the, the soldiers themselves yeah. um but witten's um witten's his, his, his death sentence is committed to life imprisonment it, yeah he yeah. serves five years of i think but yeah i think he, well, yeah yeah I was, I was reading a bit around it actually he served five years and wrote a, a, a book afterwards about the travesty of the the, the yeah. process but hancock and morant uh, are um sentenced to to death um and it's a point it's a well, point we'll, that we will say actually um before we get to the the, the, again, the final moments is that yeah. in the, after they've been told they've been acquitted of the the german missionary yeah. um they're celebrating they're in their prison drinking the kind of um some smuggled in scotch yeah. um and they they they're really quite happy they thought that the german missionary was the biggest mark against them because how could yeah. they be convicted for killing enemy combatants um and they think they they're off you know, they'll do a bit of time get a slap on the wrist and they're going home um and this is the moment when we've, we mentioned Captain Taylor, who was the intelligence officer who'd also killed six other prisoners. Yeah. He calls Breaker aside and says, this is not as simple as it looks. They're going to do you for this. They need scapegoats. Yeah. And um, Breaker says, well, you know, you're up after us. Um, and his basic reaction was, I'm an English officer of good, you know, I'm an intelligence officer of, of Kitchener's yeah. staff. They're not going to turn it on me. You three are either Australians or, you know, associated with Australian yeah. um army they're going to put it on you and this point breaker is is kind of essentially told he's going to be found guilty and he's offered a way out he, um yeah, he is. Yeah. taylor says I've got some of the guards sympathetic you can have a horse you can get across the, the border and go and yeah. he, he turns it down yeah and he says you know you can go and see the world and moran says i've seen it yeah and it's really it's quite a poignant scene because yeah. you, you think the context in which moran has seen the world yeah um and it's it's a very stoic moment, and it kind of does sum up, I think, his general character in the film. And it's a you know it's a simple scene. It's three words. I've seen it, but it, it yeah. carries quite a punch, I think. Yeah, yeah. Because it's again, it's it's because we have seen again some of these extended flashbacks, not the ones to do with the murders, but we've seen Breaker um, at home with Captain Hunt back in England when he's he's singing in a kind of a concert performance, um, you know, in, in the lounge to to his the, his fiance Hunt's sister, and you know we know he writes poetry, and in many ways he's he has a different kind of soul. But then yeah. we've also seen what, how that turned when Hunt died, and all he's known since then is killing or being accused of killing, um, yeah. and he's yeah it's 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 put him through the ringer. It has. And um, they are obviously sentenced and Hancock and, and Morant the next morning are taken up yeah. to, I don't know, like a, a kind of hilltop where um, they're shot by firing squad. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's an interesting scene as well because it goes, it's quite a long scene where they're lining them up. And then o over the, the, the visuals is um, Morant's poem, uh, which is called Butchered to Make a Dutchman's Holidays, recited by yeah. um, Edward Woodward. Um, 
I'm not going to repeat it because I can't remember the words, <laughs> but effectively it's quite a poignant thing. And it, you know, it's about the folly of the processes and stuff like that. And the the very final kind of words uttered by Morant, um, he shouts to the um, executing squad, "Shoot straight, you bastards! Yeah. Don't make a mess of it." And uh, again, you know, it's that kind of stoicism right mm. to the end. And it's a beautifully filmed scene as well. Yeah, it really is. I, it's, it's, um, it's, although, interestingly, um, again, you may have read around this too, is when um, Edward Woodward and Brian Brown are walking towards their, you know, their, the seats where they will sit to get shot. Um, we see them from the back. They're both walking towards the sunsets in front of them, so in terms of the shot. And one of them just holds out his hand to the other one, and he, the other one takes his hand, and they walk to, towards essentially their mm. deaths yeah. hand in hand. And they said that moment just came on them in terms of an acting choice. But they also they didn't realise that that's what Breaker, Morant, and Peter Hancock did in real life when they went to their wow, death. Wow, really? And, that's yeah, interesting. Um, yeah. It's, it's actually they, one of the reasons why they were so keen to have Edward Woodward. He looked a lot like Breaker Morant's old photo yeah. was. It's, it's uncanny yeah. what they did there. Brilliant. Well, that's that's a, that. Yeah, that that elevated the end there for me. Actually, I think that's 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 great. Yeah. So that I mean that's that's effectively the story. I don't. I mean, in the analysis, we might come on a bit more to um, Major Thomas as well because I feel like we've skirted over him. But yeah. he's for me, he's the the fourth major character in the film. In many ways, his his is the arc. Um, it is. Yeah. It's it's the breaking around. You know, as we see in in around is is we see their stories, but they don't so much have an arc. Whereas actually, yeah, yeah. Major Thomas begins in one place and ends in a very different one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so shall we move on to the analysis then? We shall. So uh, enjoy the jingle and we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. And without further ado, let's open the lid of Breaker Morant. James, could you tell us why you chose this film? Yeah, so... Um, I'd never heard of Breaker Morant um, until uh, I was... So... I was doing a bit of research, I suppose, but I should point out that this is probably the film so far in Weekend at Crombies that has been completely the, the most randomly chosen by me. Um, and the reason is I, I this isn't really going to make a lot of sense, but I watched um, I watched the uh, the Equalizer 2 recently <laughs> with Denzel Washington. <laughs> Um, um, and it's you know it's surprisingly good film uh, to be honest it, it it surpassed my expectations Denzel Washington is great in it and there are some really good set pieces um, and I was watching it and you know I thought oh that was a good film and then I was reminded of the fact that Edward Woodward starred in the original TV program of the Equalizer and I thought oh Edward Woodward yeah and he's in one of my favourite films The Wicker Man yeah so he's he's obviously you know I, I, I and he was a big star in the eighties actually big American star because of the the Equalizer yeah. And I was just thinking, well, I wonder what else he, he was in in the 80s that I can remember. Um, and to be honest, it wasn't a lot. Um, and I came across Breaker Morant, which is an early 80s film, um, uh, Australian film, uh, set in Australia, um, although based in uh, based in South Africa. And um, when I looked when I looked into the film a little bit, I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And I like courtroom dramas. I like war films. I like war films that are a little bit more thoughtful in um, thinking about the kind of implications and kind of principal acts that take place in war and um i thought well it it had received warm warm kind of reviews from people um you know on the internet and, and stuff like that and i thought i'd never heard of this so why don't we have this as a weekend at crombies equally it was a very successful film in australia um okay. 
where it won the kind of Australian equivalent of the major Oscars in the in the 80s, in, in 1980, actually. It was nominated for the best original, uh, best screenplay based on another um, medium, yeah. but it didn't win it. Um, and I thought, well, that's interesting because it's obviously quite a popular film, but I've never heard of it. And I don't think it is seeped into public consciousness in any way, shape or form. No, I'd never heard of it either. In fact, when I no. when you told me it was again a courtroom drama and I saw the poster, I assumed it was a cowboy film because I thought it was Edward Woodward in a hat with a rifle. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I don't I don't know many films that have been set in the Boer War, particularly. Yeah. Um, I... I just thought it would be a really interesting film to to, to watch, yeah. given given the story. It sounded interesting, and I, I and I thought, well, Edward Woodward, he seems to, okay, he he, he doesn't he, he he wasn't the biggest star. He never made a lot of films, but he's I think he knew how to choose a film. Yeah. Um. So just thinking of the Wicker Man and this, um, you know, no spoilers, but I think that those two films are, are you know are good examples of what he does, and he's. He's great in this, and he's a really good actor. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, this film really shows his range really well. Um, so it was it was an Edward Woodward um, kind of nostalgia piece, really, without knowing anything about what Edward Woodward was doing in this film. What so. Edward Woodward was doing. <laughs> what would Edward Woodward do? <laughs> well, Edward Woodward would. Oh no! It's, it's off <laughs> I mean, this, yeah, this must have been again both the, the launching point for him and Brian Brown then, in terms of because early eighties, yeah. Because yeah. um, uh, and in, interesting again, the the director Bruce Beresford, who later directed Driving Miss Daisy, which I know, yeah. surely would then be you know the thing he's known for, was apparently you know bemoaning for years afterwards. You know, I'm I'm a director. All people say to me is you're the director of Breaker Morant. Yeah, I know. It must have had some local fame around the time. I mean. Yeah. It's a, yeah, you'd think that's what he's known for, but yeah. but I've never heard of this film before. No, it's. I mean, it's a. We're again, we can talk about. I don't know whether you know. It clearly didn't. We, we talk about films that were box office hits or not. I imagine for the budget it was made and the the the, the success it did, it made its money. Yeah. But yeah, in, it, in terms it, of it, why it wasn't legacy, sort of, lasting legacy and yeah. cultural influence, it doesn't seem to have had yeah. the impact that perhaps the and, quality yeah. of the acting and etc etc yeah. justifies. But I can imagine now if you're talking about. You know, 1980. This is not the kind of film that was hitting hitting wild in 1980 cinema. Um, Maybe not. I mean, you, you're you're old enough to remember 1980, aren't you? So it's a bit too far in the distant memories for me. I'm a lot older but, now. I've hit the ground. Uh, <laughs> with, with the, um, yeah. They do say you, you take extra falls as you get older. I have to watch my hip. Um, oh dear so that was um, your choice um yeah so it, it was a bit of an esoteric choice a bit yeah. of a weird choice but um i just thought i'd go for it and okay. not worry too much about what it what it what it is or anything like that um and um to so i mean it, we, you know we've we've touched upon a lot of the themes yeah. um in, in the synopsis one of the one of the key things for me really in terms of analyzing the film is is that um is the presentation of the guilt of the three main protagonists or the accused effectively and how through the film's flashbacks the guilt is you know rendered quite explicit in many ways um and yet very skillfully i think bruce beresford still enables you to maintain a certain level of sympathy for the characters because irrespective of their actions and whether they're born out of simply following orders or rage or anger or just out being out of control 
are quite likable characters because they have a point to t- to make and they have a, a a situation that they find themselves in which probably is unfair yeah. in many ways and and yet if you were to take a similar example of it say in the nuremberg trials you'd you'd be looking at a similar type of accusation and yet there is obviously no sympathy in that context yeah so Taking things at face value, they are guilty, and that guilt is writ large. Um, and yet, taking things in terms of the narrative and the, the, the structure of the film, you see a slightly different perspective where there is sympathy and an acknowledgement that actually this is a different kind of war, and you're expected to deliver results, whatever that might be, yeah. out of pragmatism more than anything else. The kind of the the casting, if you like, of um, and I don't mean the the acting casting, but just the the, the three characters they chose to be on trial are interesting yeah. because I think it was a it was a more broad trial of like six men. Um, I think there were more, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the the ones they chose to zero on. I mean, you have again, um, Peter Hancock is almost like the everyman. You know, he's he's quite loud yeah, and boisterous, yeah. whereas you know the the George Whitten, the younger chap who who really wasn't involved in the killing, is much more kind of like the virgin soldier. He joined because he yeah. believed in empire and he, yeah. uh, and, he, and, he and he's he's disillusioned now what's both happening in empire because they they're clearly fighting on what they believe is the wrong yeah. side and also what empire was doing to them. And then you have Breaking yeah, Morant. I mean, you're right. George, George Whitten has dreams um, when he's in prison of his father. Yeah. Um, really proud of him, you know, obviously going to war to fight for the empire. And he's obviously yeah. hugely concerned about what his father would think yes, of him. Yes, that is, that is one of his thoughts. Is, yeah. He, yeah, he doesn't even think about the death penalty at the start. He's no, saying, he will, I, you know, will I be dishonorably discharged because you know, my father will be disappointed in me? Um, so yeah. his, his mind is completely elsewhere. Um, yeah. Again, George, Peter Hancock, whereas he's, he's got a wife and kid at home, um, and he he joined for money. He joined because he needed to yeah. support them, and he's just that pragmatic. And then Breaker Morant is almost you know this this very different character, this kind of poet soldier, who yeah. um who was the most bloodthirsty of the three, but also has this other side to him where you know he's reciting poetry and is deeply troubled by what happened to his friend, and and has a different perspective on what's going on there. Well, well has 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 almost a a, 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 a very counterintuitively has a moral center that you can perhaps most um most identify with yeah right because his voice is the counter argument to the pomposity of the british army and yet his actions are the are the are are the are the specific actions of which they've been brought to trial for yeah um so there is that i think there's that real kind of juxtaposition and that dichotomy within his presentation because you know edward woodward in this he has two or three maybe even more very powerful tub thumping um type of kind of speeches that that really present the the case for following orders and you think blimey yeah but the actions that you see separated from the words that you hear are very different yeah. They're very different. So the words that are coming out of his mouth are the kind of impassioned plea for a kind of stoic version of following orders and dealing with that situation in difficult circumstances. But the actions you see on screen in the flashbacks are the actions of anger and aggression um, and the easiest way out, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, that's a really interesting compromise. Yeah. I did think... Um... Again, one, uh, not so much to pick a hole, but but thinking about how, because I, I think the director's intent was to to show, um, again how how normal people or you know um, civilized people can turn to this kind of yeah, barbarity, yeah. that yeah. 
the first scene we see Break Morant in is when he's killing. Or we see him when he's been shocked at Hunt. But you never see kind of Break Morant as sort of living a normal life until later. And I'm wondering about the order of that because you begin mm. with Hunt's death and the repercussions from that. And only later are you fed the... The, again, the, the bits where again Hancock is with his wife, Witten's with his father, um, yeah. Morant is with is with his fiance, and they're, they're yeah. shown to be normal. I wonder if that had been flipped, and you had more a sense of, oh, these are everyday guys, and oh my god, they're now riding around killing people out of hand. Yeah, um, yeah. The that's true. That because I I know that the director. Um, had He's a quite strong-minded in this as well, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, he he was he was very adamant that this was this that was the point of the story. His his message was how ordinary men can be made to do brutality things in in the the total war, and it wasn't just about the establishment stitching up the men. Although, yeah. in in fairness, what I took from it was the main message was the establishment is stitching up the men. Stitching, I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll come again. Um, I think there are two there are two lines in there, aren't there? Yeah. But uh, this this I mean this in part comes back down to the idea that a film once it's been made is owned by the people that watch it. It's yeah, not owned yeah. by the director that made it. And I, I completely agree with you in the sense that I think that the, the, the main gist of the the main gist of the message of the film yeah. is much more around the fact that these three men are scapegoats. Yeah. But there but but I can see that argument around ordinary men ordinary men doing despicable things in war because they are yeah. and they do. And it just so happens that they are the three that have been court martialed. Yeah. It could have been any three. Yeah, I mean, right. that was one of Breaker's final words when Witten is, is screaming, why are they doing this to us? And he just yeah. says, you know, they, they need to end the war and they need to sweep us away. So again, it wasn't really about, you know, the, the pressure of this German missionary or the Germans entering the war. No. And it wasn't about you know, the morality of that. It was more a case of they got these guys to fight the dirty war in the dirtiest way. And now they need to end it. So they just they yeah. just thrown them to the wolves. Yeah. Interestingly, again, I think, um, again, this is the historical context of this. This is where Captain Taylor comes in again. And when you know the history of this, it does present this character in a different way. The Captain Taylor, again, we haven't really talked about much. He is, um, he's the intelligence officer. He's he's English. He's part of the, the Carbonese is attached to them. He's very cold. He's a bit more aristocratic, though, doesn't he? He's yeah. part of the, part well, he, of the establishment. Yeah, he's, he's, got a, he's got a very stoic face. You know, he's behind a moustache. Yeah. He's got these cold yeah. eyes. And he's not as warm to them. He, he kind of, he's he's part of the gang, but not so much in the sense of he's, he's one of the crowd. You see what I mean? Yeah, um, I And... He is also on trial for shooting the, the six um, for shooting six other prisoners, um, yeah. and the real life implication was they didn't actually want to convict Morant and Hancock and Witten of these crimes. They assumed they would turn King's evidence against Taylor, and oh. and that was the idea was they would they would pressure them. They would they would you know turn for clemency, turn evidence on Taylor. That would kind of cascade down. It's like kind of you break up a, a ring, isn't it? You, you pick on the first yeah. first rung and you go down the list. Um, but the Morant and Hancock and Witten didn't give evidence. They didn't crack, and almost by default, the full weight fell on them. And because mm. there was no evidence against Taylor, he got away with it. As he said in the credits, actually, he he lived the rest of his life in in South Africa, um, yeah. kind of doing other things, you know, um, after 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 the army. But when you yeah. see that, you wonder what's going on in kind of Taylor's mind. Is like, is he actually on Morant's side? Is he? Yeah. Is he try? Is he, is he just waiting for them to to be stitched up so he can get away with it? Well, there is a, there is he does come across as a, a, a slightly sinister figure in that, and yeah. I mean. Part of the fact that he's part of the intelligence unit as well yeah. suggests that he knows more than he lets on, suggests that he has a different relationship to Morant and perhaps had a different relationship with Captain Hunt as well. Yeah. Um, and fundamentally is perhaps in it for himself 
more more than anything else. And you know, even at the end where he is offering Morant a way out because people are you know sympathetic to his cause, never quite sure why that might be. Yeah. You know, I, I always find there's there's something quite sinister about that particular um, about that character's kind of yeah. arc in this as well. Yeah. We should uh, having we should look at the second character, Major Thomas. We've not really looked at yet, and he is he, he's a plays a good role in a, in in this film, both the he actor does. and the character. Is there's a there's a good arc to follow. He really is our eyes and ears into it because he's he's the one that knows nothing as we don't, um, and has to yeah. has to find his way through it. Yeah, and he 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 learns what happens uh, as we learn what happens. Yeah. So, um, and and what 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 Major Thomas is uh, brilliantly played by Jack Thompson, I think as yeah. well, who who really does create this kind of um, hodgepodge, and I mean this in the best possible way, as this kind of hodgepodge of um, seeming incompetence at the start, yeah. although you know through no fault of his own, through to searing. A, a searing sword of justice almost yeah. at the end where he he is he is the moral arbiter in the court he he is the one that is owning the argument owning the conversation but he also probably knows that in owning the argument and owning the conversation it's not going to make any difference to the outcome although he might not realize that at the time um and he, his 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 arc is great I think what's really important about him is that he plays this kind of um, he's the kind of he's the he's the absorber of information and uh, he presents that back to us in a in legalese terms, which enable us to both explore the moral ambiguities of the story through his eyes and also recognize the legal connotations in which this moral story is taking place, which I think is very clever. Yeah. And as a character, he doesn't need to do any more than that, but just explore and explain, cogitate, confirm and act as that conduit, really. And the, the agitator, I suppose, uh, which and I think he does it really sublimely. Um, it's a fantastic performance, actually, by Jack Thompson. I don't know him in much else, I have to say. Yeah. And indeed, um, as as things get more again, because yeah, almost everyone knows these guys are gonna are gonna take the fall. Yeah. Um, but he as as he is he is that you know the archetype of the good lawyer fighting the fight. You know, even yeah, even, yeah. even yeah. when they they've um they've they've been I think um, convicted and they're 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 waiting for dawn to get shot. Yeah. He appears in Kitchener's headquarters, beating the door down, saying, "I want to talk yeah. to Kitchener. He's got to commute these sentences." And again, he's yeah. presented. Kitchener's not in the country. You've got no hope. They're, you know, he's signed the death warrant. It's over. But he's he's and he. You know, he he has received I think he receives the letters from Morant and, and Woodcock um Hancock because they're you know they're next of kin and all this kind of stuff and is essentially left um, bereft as they go yeah, off to be executed yeah. and he is yeah. he has he's lost everything um, yeah and you're yeah, right he's he's that in in the same way that Hancock is the everyman soldier I almost feel like Thomas is the everyman lawyer yeah. in the sense that he's not. He doesn't have the he doesn't have the legal upbringing. He doesn't have the background that um, Charles Bolton has, who's yeah. the prosecuting. He's not establishment. He is just he's doing his job. But what he's doing in doing his job is that he has been tasked to defend these three, yeah. and by God he will defend them. Yeah, he will defend them to the very end because that is his role. That is his job. Yeah. And in the end, he ends up forming a relationship, and he likes him, and he enjoys their company and stuff. Because ultimately, Morant Hancock and Witten to a lesser extent, I suppose, but certainly Morant Hancock are enjoyable characters to be around. Yeah. You know, they are witty. They have, they are, um, you know, Morant's a poet. He's well versed. Hancock is a bit of a rogue. They have, you know, it's, it's good crack almost. You you enjoy their company. It was and once a bloke from Australia who painted his ass like a dahlia. 
And what, what I liked about what I liked about this process as well is that the way that we've been describing the film is it sound it comes across as a very melancholic very sad film and don't get me wrong the themes in the film are very melancholic absolutely but when you're watching the film there are it is interspersed with cracking it's i mean it's the script effect effectively which which works in this regard there's a lot of really good one-liners in it yeah um there's a, a really good quips really good kind of turns of phrase um it's quite funny in places um you know i don't mean laugh out loud funny but it it there's a lightheartedness to some of the kind of interactions between Morant and Hancock. There's one scene where um, they've been, um, they've been, you know, the the the, um, the 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 judgment has been given, you know, been told they're going to um, be shot at dawn, and over the over the wall of their encampment is a couple of people making the coffins. <laughs> Um, and you know, uh, Hancock just basically says you better make them, you know, large enough. Um, and it's just it's just little things like that, which you know, not overly, don't, you know, you don't make you laugh out loud, but they're just no. But which which the punchline is, I don't suppose I've had many complaints. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. I don't suppose I've had many complaints. Yeah, exactly. And it, I mean, that made me chuckle. Yeah. And it's one of those things where his kind of riffing. Yeah. You'd imagine that you know, in the face of incredible challenge, Hancock's Hancock's kind of personality would be to make light of it or yes. to have a joke or to fight or something like that. Yeah. And it's good. And, you know, Moran's way out is to you know, recite poetry, which sounds quite pompous, but it, yeah. it's not it's not in Edward Woodard's hands, I don't think. No, him reciting poetry, whether it's in person or over the the soundtrack, is really, yeah. really good. Well done. It's, it's, it's a, I find sometimes poetry can be a bit... Either two on the nose in film. Yeah, it's on the nose, yeah. Just a bit yeah. heavy-handed. But the, For me, it's on the nose, but it's not in this. Yeah, um, it's 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 really it's really well done. It's either natural because they're, again they're just he just comes out of him, or it's yeah, it's the contemplative moments that actually perfectly set the scene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you know, all of that together means that the film the film is 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 um it's it's a kind of a powerful statement about lots of processes around the kind of legal activity in war. It's a very strong anti-war film. Um, the most interesting thing is, uh, yep. sorry, um, to jump in on that, is that one of the things I took from it, and it's it's hard to say because I haven't <laughs> haven't read around or taken anything from this, but it has the real vibe of a Vietnam allegory. Um, it, yeah, it does. A li- yes, it does. And it does. A li- the the timing that. of it. I mean, it's not so far, again, given that the play would have been yeah. written before that. Um, so it's it's the play. Let's. I don't know when the play was written. I mean, just through the miracle of the internet. I, can I think in 1969 it. it was written. Okay, so it, so it's it's congru- yeah. congruent with with Vietnam. Yeah, um, it's, yeah. And then. It's it's the tail end of the eighties when they the tail end of the seventies when yeah. they got made to come out in eighty so it's it's kind of that era of of the um, disillusionment with with war in general and the Vietnam conflict but the idea of this asymmetric dirty war when you're fighting civilians when um, people are being murdered again the 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 idea of they keep talking about the yeah. absurdity of yeah. charging a soldier with murdering the enemy yeah um, yeah the idea of total war the idea of um, you know it's about it, you yeah. know you can't trust a soldier you can't trust the civilian yeah. uh, population yeah and the idea that, again this is this is um, how they told Vietnam stories when they couldn't tell Vietnam stories. They either set it in yeah. Korea or they set it yeah. in here. Again, Too Late the Hero, I thought, was a Vietnam allegory too. There are lots of films that that have this kind of vibe to it that aren't directly about Vietnam, but very much about how people were now feeling, I guess, about war. When it yeah. wasn't this, this Second World War, when it was righteous, and even though it was you know devastating and horrific, you knew there was a good side and there was a bad side. Um, yeah. And now it's, uh, people are kind of almost processing war in a different way, in their own heads and in, in entertainment. And thinking about it, I can see now why this did very bad in the 80s or not very popular when in an era of like Rambo and um, well you're right yeah and you have this is a far subtler 
film, isn't it? Yeah, and again, again it's funny that the G.I. Joe toy line had a resurgence in the 80s because people wanted this reassurance of there are good soldiers or not fighting yeah. good fights against bad terrorists. Yeah. And and there was no room for that kind of ambiguity, almost that disillusionment that sort of in the 70s of are we the good guys, is, is what we're yeah. doing right. And again, Breaking Rant says, you know, you don't get to pick the side you're on. We're not on the right side, um, George, when he's talking to young Witten, who thinks he's still fighting for Empire. In in Morant's head, he could have easily been one of the Boer commandos yeah. because yeah. they're fighting for a way of life that he understands. Yeah, yeah, he's just on a side. Yeah. That's all it is. Um, uh, but it's interesting what you say about the Vietnam the Vietnam allegory. I, I think you you could read it like that, but I think what what's what's quite successful about the film is that you don't have to read it like that at yes, all yeah, it's, it's, it stands it's not, up on not its own played, as a, yeah. As a, yeah it, it really does work by itself as a um a film a a, a court film you know about a particular thing it works quite well as a historical um film i know that there you know it, it's not directly it's not completely true to the history yeah. there has been some kind of changes to it but in principle it's a it's a filmed version of a a historic event yeah. Um, well, which yeah. works quite well so you can take it Vietnam and you can take it not as Vietnam as well yeah. and it still stands up yeah well something like again the, the approach took to Bounty in terms of history is you yeah. you can't take it as a documentary um, no and it, it's there for entertainment first and foremost as long as you take it as almost that they're, they're I guess a historical a truth rather than a historical yes. fact. Um, yes, you'll be okay. Yeah. You, you can't sit there with a notepad saying, "Well, Morant was actually two feet taller no. than that." That doesn't work. Yeah. And this kind of stuff. It's. Um, no. But yeah, it's a. It did work again. I think it's faithful to what it's trying to tell you. And what I, I agree. Yeah. yeah, you you can step into the truth of it. Yeah. Without needing to worry too much about the objectivity of the process. And yeah. I think as long as you take something from that, mm-hmm. acknowledging what it's trying to do, yeah. that's fine. And it's the same thing with the bounty as well. Yeah. You know, it's not trying to do something different in that context. Yeah. It's just trying to make something cinematic. Yeah. Well, actually, speaking of, of things that were real and not, um, I'll come to this bit. And this is a, this yeah. is I think now becoming a theme of mine that I look out for is that. Uh, <laughs> Halfway into the film, almost at the one-hour mark, you is might say. Is it the say. hour mark? Yeah, yeah it's at the hour mark. The yeah. uh, the courtroom sort of back at barricade and, and stockade is attacked randomly by a whole party yes, of boars on horseback. Yeah. They throw in dynamite. They're shooting the sentries. They're gunning down. Chaos erupts. Um, and then and, and Morant and his two comrades are broken out of the prisoners because they need every hand to the pump. Morant grabs up, goes to the armory. They get the machine gun. They're gunning down the boars. They're shooting them off the walls. Yeah. Ping, ping, ping. Vumph, it's over. Phew. Yeah. And, it's, and I, I do struggle to think that this attack of this scale did happen in real life at that know. moment when yeah. Morant and his comrades had to come out and fight. And I do wonder, <laughs> is this the hour mark when they bring in a bit of oomph yeah. to wake the audience up? Um, I mean, I actually think that that's probably the least successful thing in the film. because Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, I there's, don't think it was there's no reason. There's no need for it, really. Yeah. And um, I don't know what it was trying to do, because... I, I think in part you've got a situation then where Moran, um, Hancock and Witten are shown to be brave yeah. and doing the job because they're getting involved in the fighting and yeah. all this kind of stuff. They're, they're, very, they're very competent, almost compared to the sentries. They, they, are, they are making their marks. They're knowing what to do. They know what you're doing. Yeah, they know what they're doing. I think, and yeah. In your head, you're thinking, wow, OK, yeah, so these guys really are, you know, they're good soldiers. So that, yeah. why are they? But it's not really about that. The no. film isn't about that at all. It's the one. It's the one mark in the film where I think they could have easily got taken that out. It's completely you know, prunable. Only five minutes long. Yeah, it's, and it's, then... it's prunable. Other than again, my pet theory that they feel whether there's a yeah. producer or something feels or whether there's a screenwriting book that I've not read that says at the hour mark do something that will get the audience woken up. You know, get, because they've yeah. been sitting around watching courtroom dramas, they need yeah. an adrenaline shot, and that's how you give it to them. And even once this is all over. Um, 
Brian Brown, you know, kind of reloads his gun and says, well, that broke up the monotony. <laughs> yeah. But the weird thing about it is, is that it's really well filmed. It's, 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 a, scene, yeah. it's, it's yeah. a big, big budget scene. Oh, yeah. And you think well, they've put all that effort into that and it was just totally unnecessary. Maybe it was it doesn't trailer. have anything to film or the story. No, maybe it was for the trailer. They just thought we will get enough footage to make the trailer yeah, really was... exciting. And then they'll come yeah. in and think it's a courtroom scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a, it's oh. it's it's an it's an odd one. Again, it's not a criticism of the film, more about the way films are made. I just feel someone somewhere thought this film needed it, and it absolutely oh. didn't. It did, no, it didn't need it at all. It didn't need it. it I suppose it, it, the film wasn't worse for it. No, it really, but but it, it certainly didn't need it. Um, I, I wanted to talk about the structure of the film a little bit as yeah. well because um, it it I, when I was watching it, I was thinking back to the bounty which we we actually reviewed last year. Um, on Weekend at Crombies and how the um, I think the structure of the film works really well, actually, because um, you're introduced to the charges against them at appropriate times in the film that you need to see what's happening. Yeah. So it, I don't think it would work chronologically um, because yeah. it would be two dif- distinct elements of the film. So I think that by by interspersing the courtroom scenes with the acts of, um, you know, violence and the acts of what they're being charged against is an is is a really clever and effective way of bringing the story to a kind of head, as it were, yeah. in that context. Unless I'm um, wrong, the 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 scene the, again, the trial begins with Morant making a kind of personal statement about himself, and it doesn't yeah. begin with the charges because normally a trial no. begins with naming the charges. It's yeah, Morant no, yeah. talking about how he joined the Carboneers, how he was friends with Captain Hunt, and I think he the way we're introduced to what goes on, he goes. I'll just say I was only doing what I was ordered to do and I was really distressed about what happened to Captain Hunt. Yeah. And that's where you're given, that's what kicks off the yeah. whole thing. You're not told about the execution. Thing, yeah. Of, yeah. yeah. And that's at the very start of the film. Yeah. Before you know anything else. And then it cuts to the scene where Hunt goes to the, the farmhouse. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and so I think the structure thing works quite nicely. The film also reminded me of um, another um film another kind of courtroom war film of this ilk which is parts of glory i was about uh, to say i know you're a fan of that film and immediately yeah. thought yes this is this this is what puts my mind off yeah definitely i mean i, I you know they're, they're 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 different films in the kind of context of which the um the soldiers have been court-martialed and yeah. tried in the sense that in paths of glory they're tried for cowardice for not going over the top and you know effectively they're not really cowards yeah um whereas so they're not really guilty but it does but what what, what this film has in common with parts of glory is the um quite rigorous the rigorous way in which it breaks down the folly of the court martial system yeah. and the the need for there to be scapegoats i guess yeah. for for um, officers up in higher echelons to deal with with president. I would say that, you know, I've I mentioned this before, but Parts of Glory is an almost peerless and flawless war film. Yeah. Uh, with, with such incredible, um, such inc- it's such an incredible film. It, it, it's brilliant. Now, yeah, so no, yeah, I wouldn't, <laughs> it's, it's very unfair to compare any film to it because it, it, it is, it is it so is, good. But yeah, I certainly, but the, yeah, but, but, three, but, but, you know, but three, three prisoners who are, it's, uh, yeah. well, not exactly innocent, but certainly do not deserve the justice being meted out on them and being crushed yeah. by the system is very much it. The, the, the two similarities between the two films. It is. It is. But but what I would say, though, is that Breaker Moran does a pretty fine job in b- 
becoming a companion piece to something like yeah. Hearts of Glory. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it does the best it absolute can, absolutely can. And I think it is fundamentally a success because of that. It's a different film. It's a different era. It's a different time. It's not directed by Stanley Kubrick. And when you go into a Stanley Kubrick film, you have these expectations anyway. Yeah. I don't go into a Bruce Beresford film with expectations necessarily. So it's, you come to it with different feelings and different emotions. But as it is, I think Breaking Moran does a fine job in presenting that kind of courtroom drama that you see in war films. There are there are there are there aren't many of these types of films, I don't think. Um, and I, I have a feeling that the kind of combination of courtroom drama, uh, the moral ambiguity of war and bringing those two things together might be one of my favorite genres. Yeah. Um, that just there aren't a lot of them. I can think of like a few, is it a few good men. Yeah, yeah. Is, is it a good film as well? It is a good film. Do you know? You, you know, we have a separate section where we say let's talk about films that relate to us. You're stealing all my list. Yeah. Oh, so I'm sorry. I'm I was just saying a few good men. Yeah, it's a similar idea. It's it's yeah. it's not really a a crime. Yeah, you know, as in like who done it? Because we know where they did it. Yeah. They, they're arguing yeah. about the morality of whether they should do it and who should be responsible for it. And yes. in many ways, it's maybe that's why that's why military that. court is more interesting because in a normal court. It's you yeah. really you know, maybe someone is accused of murder and, they, and the, the lawyer probably has to solve it or something yeah. like that. There, there is an element of suspense here. Here, the, it's very unusual to have a, a military courtroom drama where you don't know the circumstances that happen. You're right. Yeah. And it's, it's, You're about, right. Yes. it's about picking up yeah. the, well, who is guilty then? Yeah. Yes. C- civilian courtroom dramas are about um, are about whether someone has committed a crime or not, or more yeah. often than not. Yeah. Military courtroom dramas are, are about the philosophical and sometimes political or theological even yeah. consequences and ramifications of war yeah. and the meaning of that. And I think that that is just a very in, just an incredibly powerful hook for me. Yeah. You know, I, I can't help myself but get drawn into them. Yeah, I think that's bang on. Wait, there we go. So, <laughs> any, anything else about Breaker Moran that we want to talk? About? Um, I think. Again, it was. Um, I'm assuming it was a small production budget. Um, I say I'm assuming because I think it did fantastically well with what it had. I've got the figures here, actually. Oh, so um, it it cost eight hundred thousand dollars Australian oh, dollars. Oh, grief! In the eighties as well. In in nineteen eighty, yeah. Okay. Um, and it took four point seven million Australian dollars at the Australian box office. Okay. And and an additional three point five million dollars worldwide. So yeah. it, you know. It, in the context of the budget, it was successful. Yeah, I'm interested to see if it's still seeped into the consciousness of Australia. Again, I'm um, to dig out an Australian friend and ask him whether it's like, you know, not quite there for weddings, but as in a film that is uniquely you know, cherished because it was Australian made in Australian history. But yes. if you said to, you know, someone who was like 20, break him around, they'd say, oh, yeah, I know that film. That, that's on every well, Christmas. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And it, what... Uh, Bruce Beresford was saying that it's basically on the TV in Australia all the time. Yeah, it's it's like that. It's like the film that is constantly on the television. You know, yeah. in America it might be Back to the Future. Yeah. In Australia it's Breaking Moran. It's a weird. You know, it's that kind of. It's seeped into the cultural fabric of Australia. And yet, to be honest, never heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah never yeah. heard of it. You know, and when I think of when I think of a film which has the the script that it does, and it's a tight script, mm. really well put together. It has, I think, three really good central performances from um, Jack Thompson as Major Thomas, Edward Woodward as Breaking Moran, and Brian Brown as Peter Hancock. Yeah. 
you know, I think they are as good as anything I've seen in a long time. Edward Wood particularly has just so gone up in my estimation yeah. having watched this film because the the man can act. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? The man can act. It reminded me a little bit of, you know, when we were watching The Bounty and you did your fantastic uh, Anthony Hopkins impression. You realised you realized I could act then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you see, Anthony Hopkins, as, as good as an actor as he is, yeah. right, was acting. Yes, yeah. He was acting in that film. Whereas Edward Woodward in this, he's Breaker Moran. Yes, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah. And he's not shouting or screaming. He has passionate, he has passionate plays on words and stuff, but... It, it comes. It seems to come from him. And, there, you know, was a, there was a lot of moments when the camera is very close to Morant's face when he's sort of yeah. giving evidence or, or yeah. just contemplating. And even with that, that that kind of proximity, Edward Woodward is doing a lot behind the behind his eyes. Um, he is, yeah. To, to yeah, really is, inhabit yeah. the role of Breaker Morant. Because I, I mean, I was I was thinking if I saw if I saw the script of this written, yeah. um, I would I would probably say that. Um, probably say that jack thompson has more lines oh yeah yeah you know certainly more lines than than edward woodward you know but so i always feel like the, the breaker Morant character doesn't have that many lines in it because he's called on to talk when he's called on to talk and he's seen in flashback yeah. but 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 it's it's the as you say it's the kind of it's the face facial expressions it's the gesturing it's the body language that he put puts in the role as well which is fantastic yeah. you know it if if this were up for an Oscar, if 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 Edward Woodward was up for an Oscar in it, I'd almost imagine he would be up for a Best Supporting Actor. And yet, it's his film, really. Well, you could again take you to pick a, another Bruce Browser film. It could be called Defending Breaking Morant, as much as Driving Miss Daisy isn't about yes. Miss Daisy. It's about Hook. Yeah. Um, it's about, yeah. It's about Absolutely. the person. So it's really Breaking Morant is the name of the film, but it's it's one man's experience of Breaking Morant yeah, um, in a moment in his life. Um, but yeah, for for all that. Yes, but yeah, it'd be hard to say he's not the main character, but in no, many the ways... film's named after him, but yeah. I'd say he probably doesn't have the most lines in the film, but when yeah. he does speak, it's quite powerful. Yeah. Um, like your thoughts on the ending of the film as well? Um, as in just what, the, the, the way it was, it was portrayed or yeah. it wrapped up? Yeah, well, the way it was portrayed, because I, I really like the cinematography of it. I, like I, the I was going to say, it, I did yeah. think it was again, a beautifully shot film, and what if I'd say that and I think in my head it's that ending scene that makes me think of that yeah. it's the the sunset over the kind of the transvaal as they're walking off to to face their end and you yeah. you have that speaking over it um wonder whether we needed to see them get shot whereas you know yes, so i was gonna <laughs> say i thought would it would it be too on the nose if the point at which they walked into the sunset holding hands was the end yeah because it, because <laughs> yeah to say what, what happens is they're basically Edward Wood and Brian Brown, they have squibs explode on their chest as they fall over backwards. It's, it's, but maybe again, it's an, it's an unsentimental ending to them. Um, after, well, yeah. yeah. And that's what I was going to say. It, it, yeah. It, I think it, you, you could end it earlier and you can end it without the actual scene itself yeah. and that would be fine. But by showing it, it does lend it a, a kind of matter of fact approach, doesn't it? And there's no, there's no, um, pomp in it. Yeah. They're they're on they're on chairs and they're shot. Yeah, you know. And also, it harkens back to the fact that this is this is like the third firing squad in the film that we've seen. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and then at the end, there's a there's a song that Edward Woodward sings. Oh yes, yes. I can't remember what it is though. It's quite. It's it's a very military themed song. Yeah, Um, it is. Yeah. Yeah, and then we get we get get a few vignettes what happened, but that's that's Breaker Morant. Um, There we are. I think we've we've done that to to death, haven't we? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, uh, we, yeah, we we go into our new section. I remember now, having stolen all my lines. Yeah. Um, other films, if you've enjoyed Breaking Ranch, you may also enjoy Paths to Glory. Again, I think that's kind of the definitive military yeah, tribunal film. Uh, again, A Few yeah. Good Men. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's that similar thing of the line. I mean, it's it's obviously more up to date and Tom Cruise, but it's it's a good military it's good military courtroom drama. Uh, Bounty. It is good actually. Yeah. Good. Um, That's the one. Is on, a few good men is the one where you, you, you want to know the truth. Yeah. You, you can't, can't handle, handle it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to sour the Breaking Rant review with my impression of Jack Nicholson. <laughs> but yes, yeah, I, I, you, you can't handle the truth um, thing, which again deals with. Again, the, the the accused are very much guilty of it. Um, yeah. But they, it's a case of well, who's who's at fault? What's the morality of this kind of stuff? Um, yeah. But again, yeah. that is very much the lawyer's story here. Um, in in a few good men, uh, I will say in terms of a something that's not quite a tribunal but thematically similar is Zulu Dawn. Um, which I don't oh, know if you've okay. seen. It's, is that the sequel to Zulu? It's the prequel to Zulu. Um, oh, not, sorry, not, inten- not, yeah, not intentionally, but it's it shot, I think, it's made some years after Zulu um, and probably riding on the success of it. Um, and is essentially, remember Zulu, basically that they write in Zulu saying there's been a huge battle and all the Brits have been wiped out. The Zulus are coming. This is mm. the story of that battle. Um, so it's, it's you've got your South African um, story going on there. But it is, in a sense, that very anti-war thing, because, of course, it was a, a British catastrophe. It's portrayed, yes, yeah. it's, it's portrayed yeah. in all the micro... Uh, faults and, and petty administrations and all the all, all the little ways and again the the arrogances of, of the officers and the sergeants who wouldn't yeah. give you the bullets if you didn't have the right chitty even though the Zulus are coming and all this kind of stuff it, it all compiles up to a complete massacre um, and again the, the the dawn of the Zulu triumph and it's again it's wasn't it's not, again you could pick that apart for a long time but I think it's interesting yeah. as a film because partly again it be it's a disaster and movies about military disasters are always more interesting but it, oh, it, it, it it has that it has that again the South African feel and the um the the sense of yeah the, the army's really grinding people down because it doesn't know what it's doing really so that's that's one that's a bit off the, the courtroom drama but if you like Breaking Ranch you might be interested in that one too well I, I will certainly look that look that one up I've not seen Zulu Dawn probably on the basis that it sounds a bit rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Zulu's the movie, isn't it? Yeah. I would, um, I would say but... Zulu Dawn is more a noble failure than a cheap cash-in. Ah, okay, fine. All right. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah. The, other, the, other film, the other film that I thought might be interesting, again, it's not quite the same, but it's not quite the same um, genre. It's not a military um, court-martial or, or, or um, kind of um, defence of a principle, as it were, but it is about a military failure, and it's about the, the folly of... Um, uh, the folly of the British Army, I suppose, really. And it's The Charge of the Light Brigade. The Charge of the Light Brigade is quite good because it's a similar film in that it focuses on the absurdities of the higher echelons of the British Army in the 19th century. Mm. And um, it is a very scathing satire of um, the traditions and processes that take place. It's got nothing to do with a courtroom or anything like that. I would describe it as a very black comedy. Is that the Errol Flynn one? No, it was from 1969. It was on TV recently, actually. Okay. It was where I watched it. Um, or 1972, I think. It's got... Um, who is the... Uh, John Gilgood's in it. Oh, um, okay. And it's got quite a lot of famous people, actually. I'm not really doing it justice in the other films you might want to watch, but Charge of the Light Brigade is quite okay. good. Fantastic. Well, then. We've got lots of films there to watch. Lots of recommendations, but we shall now... Uh 
take a short jingle break and we will be back with our scores and the film we're watching next uh, next month oh, and exciting. trust me it's worth the wait oh right okay <laughs> see you then <laughs> Dear listener, welcome back to the final part of Volume 2, Episode 6 of Weekend at Crombies, June 2019, where we've been discussing the merits of Breaker Morant. And um, I think that, as tradition befits, we are now going to give the scores, the disembodied Crombie heads for, for Breaker Morant. Now, remind me, Hugh, who goes first? As tradition dictates, we forget the order. I believe you go first. OK. Um, so... Th- this is quite interesting in the sense that um, I've I often find actually that the conversation that we have does influence the score that I give. So I'd gone into the podcast in my head, pretty sure that I would give Breaker Morant one score, and the conversation has led me down the road of giving it another score. And part of that is because of the I guess the general enthusiasm within which we've both spoken about this film particularly. And I suppose, you know, when you get that kind of enthusiasm, it sparks other things in you that you liked about the film or that you thought was 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 um, worth considering about the film. So, I'll, you know, given that kind of preamble, I guess, really, and given that um, the film has a script, which I think is absolute dynamite, is uh, structured sublimely, enabling you to worm your way into both the moral ambiguities of the actions and the um, challenge of the uh, scapegoats uh, that are presented to you and that the acting is absolutely at the top of the game for um, most of the actors in it. I'm going to give Breaking Morant five disembodied Crombie heads. Um, I was going to give it four before the, the, the podcast started, but when I think about it now, I don't know why I would mark it down. So it was a really interesting film, very thought-provoking, very moving, and on top of all of that, it was rip-roaring. So five disembodied crombie heads from me. Full marks. Okay. As yep. for myself, um, interesting. I came across this the same process. I had a score in my mind when we started talking this, and that has changed by the end of this episode. Mm. Um, I do like films that are done from plays normally that means the dialogue is normally a lot sharper and yeah. the, the structure is there already so that normally is a good kickoff it goes along at a brisk pace it's a again it's a sharp plot it's great dialogue fantastic acting and again i had on my notes there are things again i thought the the attack in the middle was a bit unnecessary there are some points where i thought the you know the all all the pommies are, are bastards was a bit heavy-handed um but Again, I I wouldn't know why I'd want to score it down. It's absolutely worth a watch. It was thoroughly not entertaining, but kind of you know thought provoking. It's five floating crappy heads for me. Oh, <laughs> is that our first ten? Our first full marks. First full marks. Well Astonishing. done. Congratulations. Well, uh... I've won this year's weekend at Crombies again. It's no newsies. You know, I could I could take a point off having no musical numbers, but then yeah, the poetry kind of counts. It does have a musical number at the end. Oh yeah, well there we go. Well there we go. That's where the fifth one comes from. It's a really good film. It's a really film worth watching. It is a really good film. Yeah. If if weekend at Crombies is made for anything else, it's films like that. Yes. It's films like Breaker Morant that that I just don't think has um, it deserves a wider viewing. Yeah. It deserves to be known a lot more. It deserves to be up there with a really, you know, one of the best examples of, I think, I think it's one of the best examples of 
one of the best Australian films I've seen, yeah. notwithstanding Crocodile Dundee, of course. <laughs> it's um, it's one of the best courtroom dramas I've seen. It's one of the best anti-war films I've seen. Yeah. So and it's an hour forty. You can't you can't go wrong. Just you no, know, it's an hour. Pop, and it, pop it yeah, on. And it's, yeah, and it's not three hours long. So what's what's not to like about it? Why isn't it really famous? Yeah, but this is what Weekend of Crombies out. All listeners out there, watch Breaking Around. You won't go wrong. You've got a ten okay. floating head Crombie head recommendation from us. Crikey. There's only one way from that. There's only way from that, and that is what are we going to be watching? Hughes July choice. Oh, this this you'll enjoy this. Oh no. Um, the so film, what is it? The Go film on. we will be watch, reviewing in July is Carrie Philby. Carrie Philby. So, by any chance, does that have an actress called Belle Powley in it? I don't know. It's based on a book, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> the, 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 the reason I struggle to pronounce that name is because it was texted to me at the start of this episode by Mrs. M um, because uh, she's one of our regular listeners by the way and yes. and has has complained that we don't pick the kind of films that she likes so when I said I needed more time to pick the film it was because I was saying because I said it saying you can pick the next one you had a whole month to think about it so Mrs. M has been mulling and pondering and thinking about films um, and has come up with um, she's texting me now Carrie Philby. Um, Carrie Philby, yes. I, I, have you I, seen it? I'm, I've not seen it, no. I'm oh, aware of it, though. It's a recent film, actually. It's 2016, oh, I think. Well, you know more about it than I do. <laughs> I barely know how to pronounce it. <laughs> okay, well, I look forward to that. Yes. Um, just out of curiosity, did Mrs. M watch Breaker Morant? She did. What did she think of it? She was very interested in the outcome of this podcast. <laughs> But no, she did like it. She didn't. She didn't run around screaming as she would have for many other films. So she, but was interested in knowing what what good uh, what we would think of it. As well, indeed, all our listeners are. Oh, of course, all two of them, including your wife, <laughs> <laughs> who has now picked a film. And, and that's a shout out to any other listeners. If you have a film you think we should watch, get in touch with us. Oh, in no, some don't way. put it out to the public. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think we're going to get swamped? <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest. Allowing your wife to choose a film is stretching the rules a bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where does it end? I'll ask Robin to choose a film next time. We'll have Thomas the Tank Engine. Which one? Because I would, I would go for that. <laughs> I don't know which one. Uh, the, the Blue Mountain Mystery, if we're going to pick any. Yeah, I'll ask him what he thinks of that. Or we might get Moana again. Oh, yeah. Well, Moana is not an unrated classic. It's a classic classic. It's a classic, full stop. It's the best Disney film. Indeed. That's it. I've said it. Blue Mountain Mystery, well, you know what, I can't disagree strongly. I'd have a hard time making that case against it. Um, it is, I think so. Oh, work of genius, Moana. But this isn't genius. the podcast about Moana, is no, it? No, I don't think that's a controversial statement. Um, no. <laughs> although Blue Mountain Mystery has a few musical numbers too, so you never know. Is Cathy Car- is Philby a musical? Carrie Philby, I don't know. <laughs> would, you like, would you like to trade Carrie Philby for Blue Mountain Mystery by Thomas the Tank Engine? This is, uh, this is your Jim Bowen moment. You, you, you've got Carrie Philby. That's safe. Do you want to go for Thomas the Tank Engine? Let's stick with Carrie Car- <laughs> Philby or Carrie Car- Carrie Philby, according to my text messages. I well, do, I do apologise if I'm bending the rules of Weekend of Crombies, but you didn't that is watch. That's a terrible name for a film, isn't it? Carrie Philby. Maybe it's about someone called Carrie Philby. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the point, isn't it? It's like, oh God, call it something else. You Carrie start, you started well. Don't judge it until you've watched it. So, Car- okay, Carrie Philby. Carrie Philby. Oh, it's Carrie Pilby. Oh, Carrie, yes. Yes, it is. There's no H. Uh, no, Carrie Pilby. Pilby. Carrie Philby. This is good if I get the name right. Um, let's begin with that. It's got Gabriel Byrne in it. Has it? It does. What did we last well, see him it. in? Were we disappointed in what he was in? 
Was, has he been in something we've seen? Uh, he might have been from I was going to choose. Um, <laughs> well, I can't help you there. <laughs> in, in fairness, I know what I was going to choose, and Carrie Pilby has to be better than that. <laughs> because I, I, I had a feel, okay, I'm not going to pick it now, because I looked into it and it's awful. I was going to pick Cool World. Oh, with Brad Pitt? With Brad Pitt. <laughs> and That's Gabriel Byrne. That's a Weekend at Crombies film. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. It's like a cheap knockoff of um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, isn't it? It's it's not even that. It's just something weird and and <laughs> peculiar. And I, I don't think even Weekend at Crombie standard is right. But uh, oh, I would have a hard time following Breaker Morant with Cool World. <laughs> when, you, when you have lines like, I shot them under Rule 303, and you go yeah. to Brad Pitt saying, Annoyed cannot have sex with a doodle. <laughs> I think I think that would that would cement no, our on, cement our reputations as you as the cinephile and me as the the human peanut that <laughs> just edits it together. I'm glad you said peanut then. I, I wondered where that was going. Well, you see, I'm only on the coffee. I haven't started the cough syrup yet. <laughs> oh dear. Well, thoroughly entertaining, Hugh, as thank always. You. And uh, and thank you to our listeners for listening. Yeah. Most, um... We wish you all a very good, albeit belated, but nonetheless good. Weekend of Crombies. <laughs> Evening all. Weekend of Crombies. Welcome. I was at a children's party. Do you see what? You jumped on my welcome then, so now I have to do a second take, having Sorry, bragged yeah. I would do it in one take. <laughs> How have you managed to mess up my takes as well as your takes? <laughs> oh dear.